The story of the one who curses God in Vayikra chapter 24, as does many biblical stories, leaves out a lot of information we might have thought uh, mattered. The name of the curser is missing, the identification of his Egyptian father, what he and the Isha Yisraeli fight about, uh, why he's brought to Moshe, all these, all this information is missing. Whenever you have a story uh, that's missing that sort of information, you have at least three possibilities. Uh, one possibility is that the information is unimportant, it would be a distraction from the, uh, from the real theme. Um, we can compare, for example, that in the story of Cain the Hevel, the text uh, also does not tell us what they were fighting about, and one theory is it doesn't matter what they were fighting about. All that matters is what they were fighting, we might, uh, that they were fighting, so we might say the same thing here. All that matters is that the character who curses God curses as a result of a fight, although it's important to recognize that it seems to be important that he curses as a result of a fight, and uh, not spontaneously as a result of a direct relationship with God or of something else that goes wrong uh, in his life. So that's one possibility. Um, I guess really there are four possibilities. The second possibility is that the text really does tell us um, what, it, uh, what all that information, we just have to learn to read it properly. Um, and that's, some forms of Medrash seem to adopt that. Um, so we have here, right, right, so really there is a clue as to what, he, as to, um, what they were fighting about in Cain Vehevel, um, so it must be at least Sadeh. Um, but those are um, often seem stretched and still leave the question why not write it explicitly? Why only write it in that hint? Um, so, a, um, another, poss- another possibility is it's not important, but there's something about the experience of reading it that is more valuable if it's vague. Um, I guess that's really the answer to the second, the second kind. The third kind, I think, is most important for us is to say that the text assumes background knowledge other than the text. Uh, that's what we call it in the uh, right, you know, in, in yeshivas we call it the masoret. Um, and what Professor Kugel has pointed out is that right, it's, and that Torah is given to an audience that knows the events, right? That's not Professor Kugel's argument, that's the way I would frame it. Professor Kugel says that the Torah never existed without its interpretation. Um, just like you know the language, you have to, right? There are all sorts of cultural things. And so the story is not being told to people who are unaware that such an event happened. It's retelling the story to people who already know things about it. Uh, right? That's another, right? That's, that's another possibility that the... Um, that the reason the text doesn't tell this information is it doesn't have to, because it assumes that the audience already knows it. Um, now, the issue I guess I would dress up here is right. So the Mikhail is the son of Shlomit Bativri Lamate Dan, um, who does not show up anywhere else in Torah, such that we should know. Right? Why would it matter that his mother was Shlomit Bativri Lamate Dan? So one possibility is it doesn't matter. And the Torah doesn't tell us anything else about Shlomit Bativri because she's just there because we want to you know, to denigrate her name, right? You know, look, if you, you don't get away with doing thing, with doing wrong things, you get punished, and that assumes that Shlomit Bativri is in some way guilty uh, in this event. Uh, another possibility is that Shlomit, the point of mentioning Shlomit Bativri is not so much to denigrate her as to emphasize that we can name the one woman who had a child from uh, from an Egyptian? Everyone, no one else did that. Um, but the um, 
I think the consensus of Jewish interpretation, such that I would say is that this seems like a likely candidate for um, right, for a Masoret of cultural knowledge, uh, is that Shlomi Bativri is the woman who had a chi- who had a child with the Egyptian that uh, Moshe killed, which means that we not that by de- identifying her, it right, doesn't only identify the um, the mother of the cursor, it also identifies the father, right? He's an Ishmitsri. So where do we have an Ishmitsri previously? We have that when Moshe Rabbeinu um, goes um, goes out, um, he's it's he's he's it's Vayar Me'echav, right? So that's the that's the textual hook that shows up Midrashim, that this Ishmitsri is the same as the Ishmitsri Moshe saw striking his friend and then we but that's obviously not a compelling textual hook by itself without cultural knowledge because you have to know that the reason that the egyptian is striking him is because he has slept with his wife which is very elaborate why is he striking the man if he already slept with his wife um so again it sounds like a a a connection based on cultural knowledge um okay and then the question whether he kills him by the shame before us does that come from the halargenia taomer um, when uh, right when the anonymous Jews whom we identify as Atan Aviram um, accuse Moshe um, or of planning to kill them uh, by saying how they're getting out to Omer, so we say he's threatening to kill them with the Shema Mephorash. So it must be that what, it must be what um, what that the way Moshe killed the Egyptian there was with the Shema Mephorash, which explains why the cursor curses at Hashem. Right, all those connections are being made. I don't know how much of that is Masoret and how much of it is the product of interpretation but that Shlomit Bad Tivri is the woman who has a child with the Egyptian that Moshe killed seems to be um, a consensus but I think we have to point out that there is one other Ishmitsri who matters in that narrative which is that when uh, Moshe shows up in Midian, Yisro's daughters come back and say Ishmitsri he saw Nemiyat Haruim and that Moshe's killing the Egyptian uh, I love quoting the Yassi Rosenstein painting, uh, which shows a man dressed in a talus looking into a grave in which an Egyptian headdress is buried, and the caption on it is Vayachet HaMitzri Shebo, that if you read the whole story there, right, Moshe Rabbeinu, um, Vayetze, it goes, uh, grows up, Vayetzei El Echav, it's not clear whether Echav means his brothers the Egyptians or his, his brothers the Jews. Vayar Ish Mitzri, Ish that's the moment when Moshe chooses his Jewish identity over his Egyptian identity and kills the Egyptian within him. So this child is connected to Moshe Rabbeinu, right, to the, to the Egyptian that Moshe killed, which means he's connected if the, right, to a part of Moshe Rabbeinu's psyche that he has chosen to suppress. Um, right, that's, right, that would be the Aviva Zorinberg style um, reading. Now we have to ask ourselves, why does Shlomit Divri have a child with an Egyptian? So here there is not a consensus in the Masoret. There are versions in which she's adulterous, right? She's to blame, um, right? She deliberately sleeps with him, though those are rare, uh, but I think they exist. There's a second version where she is inadequately tsanua, uh, right? where she, right, Shlomit Bat Divri is that she's too social, uh, right? There's all sorts of, of critiques of this critique in the case of... Uh, in the case of Dina, who is already right, also Vatetse um, Dina, so Vayetse Benisha Yisraeli, is connected to that as well. Um, okay, but we could read it that way that, there's an, that there, there's an element of blame, even though the act is not willful, and we could have our moral difficulties with that. Um, 
then there's a possibility that it's just straight out that she was raped, which is certainly uh, the version in many uh, in 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 many that um, in many versions that she really has no, no blame at all. Um, and then we have to ask: so if she's not, there's no blame at all. Why is her name in the story? Um, and that finally, that there's the extreme possibility is that not only um, not only was was she not at fault because she was taken by force. Actually, she was taken by deception, and she never and she didn't know that it wasn't her husband. All right, that's a, all right. That's one other version. So let's take taking all those possibilities. The question I would ask is: so why is Shlomit the only Jewish woman to have a child with an Egyptian? Which is what seems to be the way in which everyone reads the story um, that he's taken. That there, there, it's not that there are lots of um, of children of Ishai Yisraelit to Ishbi Sri, but he is the he is the only one such that if you identify him at the outset of the story, everyone knows who you're talking about, um, whom you're talking about. So, um, so what? Um, right. So one possibility is that that's just false. Really, that. Um, there were lots wandering around. He just happened to be one, but I have not found anybody Jewish, uh, any Jewish commentator saying that. Uh, the other possibility is that yes, he's the only one. But if he's the only one, so then um, why is he the only one? If she's guilty, so then we can say that praises all the other uh, super super tenua, uh, tenua women. Um, but wouldn't there also be children of rape? Um, so it could be that no, there weren't children of rape and. That just uh, teaches us, among other things, how different the experience of Egypt is from the experience of the American South, where um, you know, the relation, the the power relationship that Egyptians had over Jews did not extend uh, either in their minds or in the Jews, or in, um, I guess in their minds, did not extend to the power uh, to the power to rape. Right? So that's a really fascinating um, claim. I think the um, more likely answer. Um, and here I'll be giving a series of approaches of my own, although I, uh, that I came up with them independently um, doesn't mean that they haven't been uh, preceded by many other people saying the same things, I just haven't seen them, is that we say Shlomit was not the only Jewish, Jewish to have a child with an Egyptian, but uh, one possibility is she was the only married woman willing to acknowledge that the child was the product of the rape, because in most cases, um, right, if it's a rape, so the rape unless we had a Dinaceous coin earlier, uh, but uh, which presumably didn't, the um, she's still, right, the rela- her permissibility to her husband is not changed, and she would have had relations with her husband uh, within a close enough period that nobody could know for sure that the child was the child of an Egyptian father. So Shlomit's the only one who freely acknowledged that this child was the child of um, of an Egyptian father, a product of the rape, and then we have to ask: So, what did it do to her relationship with uh, with her husband at that time, um, or was she unmarried? Right. And then again, we say, why is she the unmarried woman? So, seems the most likely way to say it would be she's the only married woman. Second possibility, which may be connected, is maybe she was the only woman who carried such a child to term. Uh, everyone else aborted. So that will, of course, deal with the question of whether an abortion in such circumstances is mutter or not, before Matan Torah, after Matan Torah, but it seems to be another way of reading it. And another possibility is she is the only one who kept the child, uh, whereas all the other children were raised Egyptian. Um, that opens up possibilities of a radical rereading of, first of all, Xera of Paro. Was Xera of Paro against all Jewish children, or was it born against all uh, all mixed children, 
what is Bat Paro doing um, when she t- when she takes when she takes when she takes in the child? Um, and I wonder, right? If you think that, um, I wonder what people thought Moshe was and why Yocheved was taking him down um, that way. Is there some possibility there was a suspicion of Moshe's actual parentage, um, and that's why he was taken in? Um, okay. Now the Nitziv offers um, offers a possibility I think is is uh, powerful and intriguing for why Shlomit Divri's name is mentioned. He says the following: Shlomit, bishma Israel. Right? He mentions her by name, says the Nitziv, because there was cultural knowledge of her, but not because uh, not because she was known as the woman who slept with the Egyptian. But she was independently known. There was some kind of independent masoret about Shlomit as an isha chashuva. Uh, I think, right? I think the other possibility is she became an isha chashuva because of the way in which um, in which she played this out. V'hi shegarma al pi chashivuta sheyaviu tell the Moshe v'lasot al pi omek din Torah, and it's because of her significance, right, because she was a politically, socially powerful woman that they brought her son to Moshe um, and acted with him according to Omek Din Torah and that was the alternative to Omek Din Torah but without this right, but if she had not, if people had not known oh, this is the son of a significant woman, they would have stoned him on the spot when they heard this astonishing thing and so it's only her social prestige that rescues her son from a lynch mob and actually has him subjected to the law and has him being brought to Moshe. Now this is a, a close reading um, of the Parsha, which says, Moshe right? So that's right, so the, the mystery of why we only learn his mother's name uh, later in the episode is solved by saying that his mother's name is the explanation of why he was brought to um, of why he was brought to Moshe. So it could be that uh, she became Chashuva because of her courage in carrying a, a the child of a rape to term. Um, right? Or it could be that the reason she had the courage to bear the term was because she was Nisha Chashuva. Um, although, interesting thing is, and Steve doesn't mention at all uh, right, that she's Chashuva because of whom she's married to. Um, right, and it sounds like she has to be independently chashuva because it's not at all clear that she, that she has her husband support. We'll see later. Perhaps she really doesn't. Uh, either way, so his mother is famous, and he is famous. If we read the story this way, um, so what it seems picks up is that there's some kind of political issue. Right, you can't just right, you can't treat him the way you would treat anyone else, which is fascinating because he's engaged in a fight in the machanas, so and people are arguing with him. But not, um, but they right. But once the argument is over, they don't feel indip- they don't feel they, right. They're restrained from from lynching him. Um, so one possibility which I want to suggest is that maybe Nitziv is right in reading the story that there seems to be this tension that they bring him to Moshe and they don't feel not only they don't feel they can't lynch him, they think they ha- everything has to go to Moshe. That maybe. Moshe, in some way, acted as a surrogate father uh, for him. Um, this is a fatherless child, and maybe Moshe protected him, 
And from his perspective, Moshe protects him because he made the same decision as Moshe. He has a choice between Egypt and um, and um, and Israel, and he chooses his Jewish identity. So that right, so it could be that he's right. This is not the first time that he and Moshe have met. And the view to all Moshe is because where else would you bring him? Right, that's right. That's the man who is responsible for him. Um, okay, so now let's take a look at what the Tzror uh, Hamor um, says about this, which I think is very powerful as well. Tzror Hamor is a medieval commentary, uh, Kabbalistic, but um, I don't think that anything here depends on Kabbalah, although it does depend on a particular, on the significance of, of a particular arrangement of letters, so I have to see if you buy that. Tzror Hamor says, Kishamarkan um, Right, so when it says here that they fought in the, that the the two men fought in the camp, Lulai Amarlo, so maybe the Ish Hayisraelit said to the child of uh, the Bitri and the Israelit, uh, so the Ish Hayisraelit says uh, says to him, Kalemi Dibrutecha, stop your your talking. Right, this is a play on what Rabbi Shmuel says to Rabbi Kiva, Veleich Eitzel Negayim and go do Negayim, which is what Rabbi Shmuel says to Rabbi Kiva, Vigilule Avicha. And go to your father's Avodah right? Who is your father? Sharago Moshe b'Shema Farash, whom Moshe killed with the Shema Farash. Ukeshe And when he heard this, Vayikov ben Ishat Hayisraelit et Hashem sheharagli Aviv. So then he cursed the name by which his father was killed. Kiamar, because he said, Ech Hashem yatzabim komo shel rachamim lifkod avon avi alav lhargo. How could a merciful God? And maybe if he thinks the name is Yud Kevavke, the name of God, the name the name of the Midas Harachim of God, end up um, calling my father's sin to account, whatever my father's sin was. Um, sin of his father was uh, was striking somebody, so it's a right. So presumably the person mentioned it, mentioned this to him because he saw the son acting in the way of the father. Right? Shnei Hashem Yivrim Nitzim is what the true Jew is doing, which is but the the Yivri is just Makeh. Uh, but he's uh, presum- right. So the Egyptian was striking somebody. So the person who he's fighting with says, "You're going to strike me, just like your, um, just like your father did." And perhaps he says, yeah, "That's just like an Egyptian," and, uh, even though we know that the next day Moshe finds two Jews fighting as well. Uh, so now he reads the says, "Vayikov ben Tashem Vayikalel." So why doesn't it say Vayikov Vayikalel? It sounds like they're two different. The purpose of the writing of the verse that way is to separate the verbs vayikov vayikalel. Um, so why is that separate? So he says, Aval When he found out that Moshe was the one who had killed his father, vayikalel gam came the Moshe. So he cursed Moshe too. So vayikov et Hashem, vayikalel et Moshe, v'chol zeramuz b'amro et Hashem v'ipuch otio tu Moshe. So there are all sorts of debates about why. It says, right, he says, Vayikov et Hashem, why does it say Vayikov et Yud Kevavke, or Vayikov et Lukim, whatever the phrase is. So his answer is that Hashem and Moshe are inverted, and it's designed to draw that connection to you. It's not because of, some people suggest, because of Kavod for God, not to mention the name of his curse. No, it's designed to draw this connection to Moshe. Uh, um, and then, right, he has Kabbalistic visions about why Moshe is so important, um, and how you connect Moshe to Lukim, which don't matter to us. Um, so he has to, so actually he does Vayikov Vayikalel so he has two different sins and they're not sure which 
he is um, which he is chayav for whether he's more chayav for cursing uh, for cursing God or cursing Moshe. Uh, so I think I would I love the Surah Hamor's insight, but I would take a very different attitude. Um, the insight he has was that you could, is that he reads the story. Uh, we saw the literary point about Vayikov and Kalel, but he reads the story in which the person finds out now for the first time that Moshe killed his father, let alone he killed his father using the Shema Mephorash. Uh, and so his reaction is in the moment, and every, but the thing is, but everyone else knows. Right? The, right? So this is a kid who has been raised not knowing something that everyone else knows. So you imagine right, his vision of a society, uh, I think, is that um, Shlomit brings the child to term, and everyone agrees, there's this vast conspiracy, that the child will never know that he is the product of the rape. Um, we don't know who he thinks his father is, but, um, so yeah, maybe he's just the only, right, maybe Shlomit is the only single mother uh, in Israel, but Moshe Rabbeinu has been his surrogate father, is my thesis, because the connections have, made, have been made all the way through, and now he finds out that his surrogate father is actually the one who killed his biological father. So, right, and he, and even Sramor depicts him as like saying, how could God, right, so he's, he's not cursing God because he is a consistently bitter, anti-religious person. It's because he's been disappointed. He's been shocked, and I'm just extending his reading of Sramor's claim about God, how, right, how could the Shema Meforash be used to judge my father to Moshe, right? How could the person who is related to me in this way um, actually have killed actually have killed my father. Now this, uh, so my reading is very counter to the Kliakar, so I think it's valuable to read the Kliakar just so you can you know evaluate, uh, realize that I'm not I'm not the first one to think of the issue, and then evaluate which, which reading you think is more plausible. So here is the um, Kliakar. Okay, that we know. and therefore, all all his life. Because, right, he was right. He was always cursing God in his heart, but he never expressed it. It never came out that anyone else could observe it. Right. So Perkiavos it says that if you desecrate God's name, which he's interpreting to cursing God's name, which is an interesting question of the connection in private. So then eventually you get punished in public. So that's what Abelkain Sivev Hashem. Therefore, God uh, arranged it. Um, okay, so the first, right, so the first thing Kliakar says is he knew all along, and this is just the moment when it's revealed, as opposed to Surah said he just found out. But then Kliakar also makes the connection to Moshe. He says, the Kliakar, nonetheless, right, in his reading, agrees that he's doing this in conscious opposition to Moshe. Right, this is his moment of, right, Moshe Vayetzei Elachav, that's when Moshe hits adulthood, and this is his moment of adulthood. Um, and he says, well, that's, well, Moshe's moment of adulthood was the moment when he identified with the Jews, and my moment of adulthood will be when I identify against the God of the Jews. And Moshe had his big moment privately, 
um, right, which he was going to say is cowardice, but I will show who I am publicly. Uh, I think it's pretty clear when you read this novel, right, that, you know, if you, if you read this as a narrative, this is the, this is the way that children rebel against parents. So I think that the Kleakaris supports the psychological claim, but he has a, right, but he thinks that this is a lifetime suddenly emerging as opposed to a, a sudden epiphany when someone else tells him something that he did not know what everyone else did, and I prefer this for Hamor's reading um, in that regard. Um, in all of the versions we've had so far, Shlomit is identified, the Ish Mitzri is identified, but the Ish Yisraeli, who fights with him, is not identified. Um, so I've argued so far that means that it could have been anyone because everyone else knew. Um, but should be aware that there is a tradition in, um, you can find, I'm going to read the version from Pirkei Rabbi Yezer. Rabbi Yossi Omer Hayuha Mitzriim Mitamin Es Yisrael Vet Neshehem Imam. The Egyptians would be Mitame, the Jews, and also their women. So he thinks actually rape was prevalent, which raises the question of whether he's the only child, uh, and if so, why. V'tayda Lecha, do you know this? Sheben Beno Sheldan Nasa Isha Mishivto Ushema Shlomit Bativri there was a grandson of Dun who married a woman from his tribe, and her name was Shlomit Bativri. And she was raped by Paro's uh, oppressors, and they killed her husband. But, um, okay, right, so that's one version, then he, and he turns out badly because, uh, right, because he has bad heritage. Um, so that ident- right, identifies him as a member of the Shevet of Dun, but in the Yalkut Shimoni, he's identified as somebody named Biria, and the Chizkuni is identified as someone named Neria. Uh, Neria seems, I guess, uh, more likely than Biria, but not necessarily. Uh, maybe Bar, uh, Baria is parallel to Bitya, uh, or Biria is parallel to Bitya, and so this is set up in some way um, as a parallel about Paro, I'm not sure. But just be aware that there is a Masorah in which he is um, specifically identified. Uh, I cannot find a trace of that character elsewhere. If somebody else can find me uh, a trace of Neria or Bitya in this context, that would be great. Um, this is another example. You know, the, where did this come from? There's a whole, we are forget forget understanding the text of Chumash. We don't even understand the Medrash without a uh, we don't have the cultural context to understand the Medrash because there must be some point in um, in naming the um, in naming in naming the character. Um, the Ksava Kabbalah has a fascinating claim. He says Vishai Yisraeli. Ben Balo the Shlomit me Isha Acheret, right? That it's his half brother, it's Shlomit's, uh, right? It's Shlomit's husband. We don't know, right? Is not named. Uh, has a son from another wife. Um, uh, right, the Kevan de Ata Hal Allah, because from the moment when she was raped by this Egyptian, Tuvit Paresh Mina Bala Venatul Inu Achra Veolid Lahai. So Shlomit's husband, in fact, uh, abandoned her once she was, so far as we can tell, so far she was raped, right? There was a stigma. Um, and he has another, he has another wife, and he, and, the, and he has another child from that wife. Now that child uh, is younger than the Mikhail. And so now we have a, right, now we have a context for the whole, right, for the claim that uh, I think is, is standard in Midrash, as that the fight is about about his desire for a birthright, and the person he's fighting with is the person whose share he would be taking, 
because his father, right? Because Shlomit's, uh, Shlomit's husband has a bechor, uh, and up till now he has assumed that he was the bechor. He is the older child, and that was his father, um, right? That's a right. But now it turns out, in, uh, in the right that he suddenly discovers that not only that's not his father, and he's not, and the reason he finds out is because all of a sudden somebody has a reason to break the. Um, to break the conspiracy of silence, uh, because the keeping up the conspiracy of silence would mean losing the bechora. So right, so that's a very, it's a very, so that's that's also a uh, right. So both the both the version, both the Sava Kabbalah, um, I think, although he doesn't explicitly say it's from Dan, but I think it's clear that the whole point is that it's it's it's, it's um, the person who is fighting with him is the person whose inheritance he would be taking. And Pirkei Eliezer, which makes clear that the reason, right, that it's not just his mother is from Don, but his father is also from Don, and that's why he would be fighting about Machana. They all say that we have to identify, right, have to identify why did the conspiracy of silence break? And the answer is the conspiracy of silence broke because now there's enough gemina, uh, really, for the first time uh, to doing it, and the moral commitment of the Jewish community to not telling him breaks down. Um, Okay, we should um, read this narrative possibly against the story of Benot's uh, Tlavchad. Um, so the interesting thing is Benot's Tlavchad, they go to Moshe, right, they go to Moshe, and Moshe turns to God, and ends up, and because he turns to God, he, they end up winning. Uh, whereas here, the right, the, the you have to read in the claim they go to Moshe's court, and Moshe doesn't go to God; he just rules based on his own his own reasoning. And that's when he when he when he leaves when he's chayav. That's when he curses, and then they bring him to Moshe, uh, right? So I think that you could read that as saying that you know the moral of the story is that when they ask the question about the about whether the, whether to go to Nachalo, that's when Moshe Rabbeinu uh, should have gone to, uh, to God. But my own reading is that uh, they wouldn't have gone to they wouldn't have gone to the Torah before because um, right, it's the Din Torah that's shocking to him. The suggestion that they should go to Din Torah. Because he has always thought that the Nachla is obviously his, not because he's a matrilineal, but because he assumes that both his parents um, are Jewish. Okay, so but other uh, right. So now, um, rabbinic commentators generally assume that if Moshe had to turn to God in this case, there must have been a legally serious havamina. It can't be just about the circumstances; it has to be something legally serious. So they assume um, that. It doesn't matter what they were fighting about and whether he was right about what they were fighting about, whether he should have had a share in the Nachala, say, because what he does in the end is unforgivable regardless. Um, so what is the legal debate about whether what, what should happen to him for cursing God? So Shadal says, um, right, There hasn't been any commandment so far about not cursing God, because when it says, uh, that's talking about cursing judges, not God. Because why would we issue such a command? Nobody would ever think of the possibility of cursing God. And the only reason that we have this partial in the Torah is because he did this thing which is utterly astounding. So this is parallel perhaps to the famous position of the Dor Revi uh, as to why there's no prohibition against cannibalism in the Torah. There's no prohibition against cannibalism in the Torah because what? Right? Do we have to tell you that you're not allowed to be a cannibal? Uh, okay, right, so you can see if you find Shadal uh, convincing or not, but he makes the point that um, that God has to then tell Moshe the law, which implies that up till now the law has not been said. 
So we can get into the whole question of how, right, of, of what about Birkat Hashem as one of the Shavim Mitzvah by Noach and where that was learned from and whether that was known before Matan Torah and, and to whom and all those sorts of issues. But Shadal Pashat reads it that there was no law until this point. You were just supposed to know it from Svara. Um, other possibilities to what they're, they're wondering about. All right, so Shadal says they just didn't know the law, although it was intuitively obvious, but now if you want to actually enforce it, you have to prove that it really is the law. Um, there are fancier versions, which they, they think that he is, right, that um, even though he's matrilineal, but the dean of matrilineality only comes in after Harsinai, and he's born before Harsinai, so maybe matrilineals who are born before Sinai are not Jewish, um, or maybe the, the, the kind of Misa that Jews and non-Jews are chayev for cursing God is different, and so they're not sure whether, right, whether he gets Skila uh, or Saif, uh, or another fancy version is that Maybe they know that this is usser and really usser, but they think that it's so evil that we wouldn't give you the death penalty because it's too terrible and you don't deserve the kapara, uh, that, uh, which parallel to all the, you know, the idea that you don't get Misa for uh, sacrificing all your children to Molech, uh, because it's umiza rechalos, right? Um, right? So the argument is that you don't get kapara, and there are all lots of other examples, uh, many other examples of that. Um, or that maybe even if you could, uh, even if both non-Jews and Jews are chayiv misa, but a convert is right who converts after the crime, is not um, is not is, right can't be executed because of ishtani misaso, and maybe in that reading right you have all the midrashim that say milamei sheniskayer, maybe he converted after he cursed him, which is a really fascinating claim that. Uh, right, that this moment, like, there are two contradictory things. On the one hand, he curses God. On the other hand, he absolutely affirms his Jewish identity. And right, we could have a really fascinating psychological discussion about um, whether somebody who converts in order to do Yisrael Mlachis, uh or who does Yisrael Mlachis and that brings them, right, to just the experience of God's anger brings them, right, brings them to appreciation of God. So after they've committed all their Chayvi Misos, then we can convert them. Or did somebody suggest this as a legal defense? Or fascinating, fascinating claim that he converts uh, he converts now, which is one of the uh, one of one of the approaches. Um, Meshachachma says that in fact they knew that they couldn't execute him legally um, because since there had been no pasuk, so you can only you can only execute people for violating something if you give them hasra, and hasra requires the pasuk. So if there's no pasuk yet; they couldn't possibly have given him hasra, uh, right? So they, you can't carry out the halachic death penalties. So Meshachachma says, "Vayirgimu oto aven lo katav vayamod b'shum tashamit barach lo hiskiras lo mojumat." So the first thing Meshachachma picks out is that really we have three part, three separate discussions of what's supposed to happen to him. What God says to Moshe is, "Ragom yirgimu oto kol ha'ida," and then Moshe says, "Halacha is mojumat if you're mekalel lokim." And then when we look at what they do, it says, "Vayirgimu oto aven." So he says, it doesn't say by emot when Moshe, when Moshe gets the instructions about the specific case, and it doesn't say by uh, emot in what they actually did. Why? Uh, that, right, that, Moshe, that Moshe knew that, um, right, that the Makoshesh would die, just to, but, the, but by the Megadev, they didn't know. Uh, Moshe didn't even know whether he would die, not just how he would die. So in fact, um, his death is not the product of the law, but the product of uh, of a of a, of an ad hoc um, one time um, one time rule because there was um, because there was no 
hasra, and therefore you can't say mot yumat kevan chayah below hasra. So I think what the um, what the Meshachachma means is that he's not a gavra ketila, right? He's not legally dead. He just happens to um, he just happens to have died, but that's not a right. That's the law is not that right. So if you take Rav Chaim Brisker's uh, claim, right, that the reason that courts can execute is because by pronouncing sentence they declare them dead. So this person is not a legally dead person in that sense, and so actually killing him is not formally legal. Right, you have to do it. Right, everything has to be justified extra legally. So that's a pretty fascinating claim. Um, the literary implication, though, is again that. The, when God tells Moshe what to do with him, that's not telling Moshe what the law is, right? They're really two separate parshios. First is Arasha, this is what should happen in this case, and then there's this is what should be the law in the future. Now it turns out the way the the way that the Meshachachim reads it that the law in the future will yield the same result. It's just you couldn't have it in this case because the law can't be the same before there is a law as afterwards because of the technicality of Hasra. Um, now it's interesting that the um, that the Meshachachma reads this way because the Sifra actually says Yachol Harasha Talmud Lomar Vel Bnei Yisrael to the Berle Mor Yehemin Hag Yehemin So right, so the um, the Sifra reads it as you might think this is Harasha. No, it actually is the law. But I'm not. I suspect that Meshachachma knew this, and when he's reading it as uh, right, it's a harasha this time, but you should know this harasha will in the future be the law because then you can give hasra. Um, okay, and then the the uh, sifra brings yet another uh, another connection to to uh, Moshe uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, so he quotes that line about uh, Kalei. Uh, mid, um, yeah, okay, right. So that, that's the sorry, I left out um, the name over here. Um, Okay, sorry, I just included this word. Right, so, fine. So it's just the, um, it's just the, uh, the denies Horashah, but maybe it's saying the same thing as Meshachachma. But what I want to say is, um, so really we have four statements about what happened. You have the, you have the instructions to Moshe, which is, um, right, the instructions to Moshe say that you should, um, right, the, Shachim Moshe say that Hotzeit Makalel Mechus Lamachane take him out of the camp. Bisamchu Kol Shomim Eti Dehem Al Rosho and everybody who heard what he said, presumably, uh, have to put their hands on his head. Ragmu Tokol Ha'ida and then they will be rogaim him, and then they'll be Israel to the barely more. But this is what you tell the Jews. Ish Ish Ki Yekelel Kav, and um, right, we go on with that parsha, uh, which makes it clear the punishment is death. Then by the Bir Moshe Ben Israel by Yotziut Makalel Mechus Lamachane by Ragmu Oto Aven. And then it says, Moshe. So this has already said what they did, so why does it have to say, Bnei Yisrael Asu, Kasher Tziva Hashem et Moshe? It's really these four things, right? There's, there's um, what God tells Moshe to do, there's what Moshe tells them, uh, to, there's what God tells Moshe to tell them, there's what the text says they did, and then there's a second description of what the, um, of what the text says they did which is um, that they did kasher tziva Hashem et Moshe. Um, now, so the easiest way of reading Meshachachma is that Ibn Yisrael Asu kasher tziva Hashem Moshe can also be read, as some people argue, it's talking about other halachos of how you deal with executions, uh, or it could be that it's, that it's talking about the Ibn Yisrael in the future, in other cases, did according to the 
um, to the, what Moshe told them was the law. Um, but I think the most interesting reading is that B'nai Yisrael followed the instructions that Moshe was given as a Huras Shah. Um, but I think that's the, I think that's the that's the easiest way out. Now the question is, so the way the Meshachachma read it, Moshe read the instructions that were given to Moshe as a Ras Shah is do everything as if there had been Hasra. Uh, but the Meshachachma also mentions one other point, but right? he says it doesn't say Vayamot. Um, and then we look and it says Bragmu Tokolo Eida is what. Um, is what God says to Moshe should happen. And then by Regimulo to Aven, they throw one rock at him. So why do they throw one rock at him? So halachically we learn that if he dies with the first rock, that's enough. Um, but I wonder, since Meshachach pointed out that God never said he has to die, and they only throw one rock at him, uh, maybe uh, the proper solution is that the halacha is that he has to die, but the Horas Shah was only that they had to throw a rock at him. Now, what's not clear to me is whether Moshe Rabbeinu necessarily understood this when he relays it to them at the time, and whether you know, like the radical way would be to read it that God's instructions to Moshe are given so that they, should, they will be carried out by the Jews, Kasher Siva Shemit Moshe, as God had commanded Moshe, and not as Kasher Tziva Moshe Otam, the way that Moshe, the way that Moshe commanded them, because Moshe's commands to them are the law, whereas when it comes to the um, when it comes to the instructions from God, he relays the language, um, but he's not claiming it's the law, and maybe they have more leeway to understand it on their own. Or let's frame it this way. Um, the Mekalel is the inverse of Moshe. He is the half-Jew, half-Mitzri, whose brother is not glad to see him. Moshe, Aaron is glad to see Moshe. Now, part of that, perhaps, is that Moshe does not threaten Aaron's Bechorah. Uh, right? Moshe is, a, right? Moshe is a younger brother. Um, and Moshe becomes the leader of the Jews, despite, right, because of his heritage. But um, maybe that's because Moshe is somehow suspected of royal Mitzri parentage. Um, that's why but they think Bitya takes him in, whereas uh, this is the uh, right. This is the child of a thug, and so he becomes not the leader but the tail, at best. Uh, even though he is the one uh, whose mother never gives him up, everyone knows who he is. Moshe adopts him, and everyone has protecting him from the, from that knowledge. And now all of a sudden, the knowledge breaks, and we kill him. Does that mean he should never have happened? It was a mistake. Shlomit should have not carried him to term. Um, that this was inevitable, the way um, right, that Kliakar suggested. On the other hand, if Moshe says to spare him, will they believe that Moshe is saying to spare him because that's what God said? Um, so I think we end up with this very deliberate, um, deliberate situation in which Moshe gives instructions um, which could easily be understood if they thought that was the right thing, as kill him, throw rocks at him. Usually when you throw rocks at people, the purpose of throwing rocks at somebody is um, is, is so they die. Uh, but everything works out, I guess, the way it's supposed to, that Moshe gives his instructions, he doesn't tell them not to kill him, and they understand the instructions as being not to kill him. But, does that really solve the problem? 
after they throw the rock at him. Does he have a place in the Machane now? Would we and he have been happier if he had chosen to identify with his father, which perhaps was his halachic choice pre-Matan Torah? Uh, perhaps even according to the position of Rashi and many others who read this, who read, who read just this sugya, um, that matril- as saying that matrilineals have the right to, right, matrilineals become Jewish retroactively after they convert. But does that mean they have an obligation to convert? Not obviously, so maybe um, maybe in the social situation he was in, it would have been better had he chosen not to, had he chosen not to convert. Um, so we don't ask him that way now except to create kulas in situations of great need. Um, but maybe that's a, a social advance uh, and also the absence of an issue of, uh, of Nahala. Um, the, the ultimate question about reading this story, I think, really, is that's let, even if you buy everything I have written, which is to say that right, you can read the story as an unmitigated tragedy, which is that he dies, um, whether that's inevitable or not, um, but he's executed because somebody does something to him which causes him to have an uncontrollable uh, reaction or to have a controllable, even if understandable, reaction. Or, say, it's a mitigated tragedy, uh, which is that he doesn't die, um, but at the end of the day, there's no evidence that he's reconciled to his absence of standing in the machine, or is there some sort of communal failure? Because there should have been a way uh, to maintain, uh, to, right, to, main, to give him a position in the machine, whether that, that solution was maintaining the fiction that, he was, that his father was actually uh, from Dan, or whether it, Moshe should have asked God about the, uh, about the halacha in that case, or some sort of broader social change that would have gotten to that result. Um, really, the question is whether the moral of the story is supposed to teach us how terrible it was that there was Megadef and how well we reacted to there being a Megadef, or is the goal to have us assume some responsibility um, because right, how could a Jew ever come to the situation of being Mikhail Hashem? And it's not external pressure that causes him to do it, but it's the internal way in which he's treated by others, and that should cause us to figure out, so why is it, you know, to take responsibility for our failure to build a Jewish community that makes everyone uh, feel that what they want is a closer relationship with God. Shabbat shalom.